Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today, my guest is a diagnostic and dispensing audiologist, Jovi Strezlecki. No, how do you say it? Strezlecki. 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 <laughs> Jovi, thanks for being here. Sure. First of all, Jovi, where is the best place to rock climb in the Bay Area? Oh, gosh. In the Bay Area, um, there's a lot of options. So you can go down to Castle Rock, down to Pinnacles. Why is Castle Rock a good place? Because it's the first place I thought of. (laughs) (laughs) So what is a diagnostic and dispensing audiologist? Well, basically my job is to test people's hearing. I diagnose hearing loss. I can diagnose other disorders of the ear or put information into the doctors for them to give a diagnosis. Um, In addition to people with hearing loss, I work with people with balance disorders, vertigo, dizziness, equilibrium problems, and things like that. Who are your primary clients? What kind of people are coming to see you? Well, for hearing loss, most of my clients are 60 years and older. Sometimes they're younger and they just want a baseline for their hearing, but by and large, if they've got hearing loss, they tend to be over 65. Um, I see kids too, lots of kids with ear infections. I see people of all ages for balance disorders. Okay. So tell me about balance disorders, because I know that's one of the things you're most interested in having to do with the ear. I get motion sickness. Does that have anything to do with balance disorders? Probably not. I'm not falling down. I don't get vertigo. (laughs) Well, it could be related. So there are vertigo disorders, balance disorders related to the ear, and there are disorders related to other parts of the body, the proprioceptive system, the brain, the central nervous system. And one of the things that makes us motion sick is a mismatch of inputs. So our vestibular system, our ears, get one signal, for example, you're riding in a car and your ears know, I am going forward at 60 miles an hour, but your visual system is getting a different signal. So you're in the car, you're reading a book, you're seeing your environment in the car, and our brain doesn't really pick up 60 miles an hour worth of movement, it just sees the seat in front of you. The brain gets a little confused and you can end up not feeling very good. And it's so obvious because when I'm driving, it doesn't happen. So I feel like my eyes are obviously getting different signals. It knows that I'm doing something. I'm in control of the vehicle, right? Right, and I I think there's something a little bit more, you're a little bit more integrated in the motion of the car. You're causing the motion of the car, you're causing the turns, you're causing the braking, and... You you also have something stable to hold on to, and everybody else is just sort of being (laughs) thrown around. Yeah, at the mercy of whatever the driver's doing. So that could have something to do with it. What kind of balance disorders do you see? Well, I see a lot of patients with Meniere's disease, which in, that? that's an ear disease. It's not a very fun disease to have. That is a, um, basically it works like high blood pressure in the ear. And what the patient experiences is oral fullness, tinnitus, hearing loss, and typically pretty acute bouts of vertigo, nausea, vomiting. Wow. That come and go, yep. And then I see patients with benign positional vertigo. So vertigo, that's kind of of a, mechanical nature based on the movement of particles in the ear. 
There's other things too, infections in the inner ear. Um, migraine is a big one. It doesn't affect the ear, but we do see a lot of patients coming in suspecting ear disease who turn out to have migraine-related vertigo. Wow. So it sounds like there's a whole host of things that can happen with your inner ear that lead to balance problems. There is, certainly. Wow. From infections to migraines to... mechanical to stuff to mechanical head trauma, stuff. concussions, yeah. I think mostly what we're going to talk about today is noise-induced hearing loss because I know there are a lot of people listening who are sound engineers and sound designers and people who work on live events who want to know about their future. The mechanism behind noise-induced hearing loss can be two different types, basically. One of them is based on mechanical injury to the ear, trauma to the ear. So this membrane vibrates when the fluid vibrates it shears the top of the hair cells, and if an impulse noise comes in at a large enough amplitude, can actually damage the hair cells um, physically, structurally, cause trauma to the hair cells. That could be like a gunshot. That could be, yeah, something loud like that. The other type is more of a metabolic slash chemical type. So as these hair cells fire off nerve impulses, the concentration of calcium builds up within the nerve cell. Eventually, that can cause the nerve... Uh, sorry, the hair cell to go into apoptosis or cell death. Apoptosis? Yeah, fancy word for terrible. the cell sort of kills itself. Wow. So with enough metabolic distress, these hair cells are going to be dropping off, and they don't come back. Oh, wow. What kind of event causes apoptosis? Well, so this... Noise, anything loud? Yeah, noise, okay. long-standing noise, gradual noise, noise over a lifetime, loud noise. Basically, accumulation of your noise exposure from whatever source. Versus that impulse noise is more likely to cause a quick structural trauma. Okay. Now this threshold shift that you get after a concert is not necessarily related to this active mechanism I was talking about. That's called, it's called a temporary threshold shift. And that can happen due to metabolic distress of mm -hmm. the hair cells. So they have undergone this action potential, this nerve impulse so many times, they've got calcium built up inside their cells. Now when they fire, they're not firing at the same amplitude. So you're not getting the same volume, so to speak, out of your ears, the same loudness perception, because the cells are tired. <laughs> they're not firing the same as they were before the noise exposure. So Jovi, I was hoping we could, now that we've talked about how the hair cells can be damaged by overexposure or trauma, if we could maybe talk about some real-world conditions, I'm sure people want to know uh, how this can happen to them. Uh, most of the shows that I work on average around 95 decibels and sound pressure level. And it seems that's what most people's ears want at a concert. From what I understand, this is not harmful for a typical concert length of time. But what about sound engineers like me that are exposed to this more regularly? Well, if we think about it in terms of what... OSHA permits on a daily basis. If you were to work a job eight hours a day for the rest of your life, I think they estimate 40 years of working life. How much total noise exposure do they consider safe? That is, what is the total noise exposure they consider not to cause work-related hearing loss in more than 25% of employees? Mm -hmm. And for OSHA, that limit is 90 decibels over an eight-hour period, five days a week, mm -hmm. 
for 40 years. So that's a lot of noise exposure. And if you think about, you may get 95 decibels for an hour at a time if you're listening to something, but for most people who work in loud environments, that 95 decibels is not a constant level. It, right. it fluctuates. So the end result, if you were to take measurements over a period of time, probably would not be 95 decibels, right. when it, even though it peaks at 95 decibels. For OSHA, which is the general, they're the federal agency that actually sets guidelines that people okay. use in their occupational settings. OSHA is federal, and what is, what NIOSH. is it? NIOSH. NIOSH is also a federal agency, but they are more of a research agency, so they don't actually make guidelines. Okay. Um, but their recommendations are for 85 decibels, eight hours a day, versus OSHA uses 90 decibels, eight hours a day. The EU uses... 80 decibels wow. over eight hours a day. So 80, 85, 90, OSHA being the most, the least conservative as far as. So as, as research and guidelines are developed, it sounds like the, the allowable limits are getting lower. I think so, and if you look at trends in the military, they've gotten much, much stricter really? about hearing protection and allowable hearing levels. Okay, so that brings up this little spreadsheet that you sent me, um, because I'm sure lots of people want to know if they're, about their particular case, is their exposure too much? The great thing about this little spreadsheet that you sent me is that it has three different uh, regulatory standards. One is OSHA, one is NIOSHA. I don't remember what that stands for, do you? Yeah, NIOSH. It is NIOSH. the National Institute of Occupational Health and safety, which I have written somewhere, but... <laughs> safety and health. Safety and health, yeah. um, And then there are the EU regulations, which are the most strict, interestingly. I'll put this on the website, and then if you open it up, you'll see that there are numbers of records. Those are hours going down. And if you put in your exposure for each hour, then at the very bottom, you'll see total dose, and that shows the percentage Basically, if it says 100%, you've received the total allowable dose of sound for the day. You're meant to put in data points from a dosimeter. So a dosimeter is a device you can wear. You're meant to wear it at ear level. It takes measurements throughout the day and average them, averages them over a period of time to come up with your total noise exposure. Mm -hmm. So these 10 data points on the spreadsheet represent measurements by the dosimeter at certain points of your day. Do, does anyone actually use a dosimeter? Do you give that to your clients and say, okay, wear this for a week and we'll take the points? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not an occupational audiologist, so I don't use a dosimeter. But People come to you when they already have a problem. Exactly, exactly. But there are audiologists who specialize in this. And yeah, there's different kinds of dosimeters. You can clip it onto your jacket, wear it over your ear, put it someplace where it's going to hear the same things that you're going to hear throughout the day. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. Are there some common myths about hearing loss? Common myths? Well, so one of the things that people, I think, assume is that if you have hearing loss, things should be louder for you in order to hear them. And the ear doesn't really work like that. Hearing is a nonlinear system. Mm -hmm. 
And because we lose that active mechanism where the ear can bump up soft sounds and damp down loud sounds, we also lose dynamic range. So patients will complain to me that, well, I can't hear anything, but if I turn it up, it's too loud. And that's a real common complaint. So something that may be comfortable to me at 90, 95 decibels to someone with a hearing loss is uncomfortable at 85 decibels, even if their threshold for the sound is 50 decibels and mine is 20 decibels. So the range shrinks considerably when you have hearing loss. And then another part of that is that as we lose certain frequencies more than others, and as other physiological changes um, happen to the ear, happen to the nerves, we also lose clarity. So someone with a lot of hearing loss, it may be that you can just turn up the sound louder and they'll be able to understand speech clearly, and it may not be. It may be that it just gets more and more distorted the louder it gets. So that's mm. part of the challenge with hearing loss is providing as clear a signal as we can at a loudness that's comfortable and still providing enough volume to help. Interesting. So you, you might, you're not just making everything louder, you might be bringing up quiet sounds and bringing down loud sounds. Right, and hearing aids are little computers, they're little equalizers, so the hearing aid knows what the patient's threshold is, how loud a sound has to be in order for them to hear it. So if a 30 decibel sound comes in, the hearing aid knows, oh, he's not gonna hear that till I bump it up 20 decibels. If a, an 80 decibel sound comes in, the hearing aid knows, oh, he doesn't need any more volume. And it does, it does that pitch by pitch, or at least in bands of frequencies. Oh, really? It's not mm -hmm. just the entire frequency range? Nope. Together. Yeah. Okay. And so this is probably one of the main things you do in your job. You, When you give the test, you see where they're more sensitive in the frequency range and then adjust the hearing aid to deliver something complementary. Exactly. So I put the hearing test into the computer. The computer, the software of the hearing aid has all kinds of algorithms to figure out an optimal setting at each pitch for each input level for different environments. So the hearing aid knows if you're in a quiet environment, it knows if you're in a noisy environment with speech in front of you, mm. it knows if you're in someplace like on the BART train where it's too loud to hear people, the hearing aid just needs to get quiet to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. If you're listening to music, and that's a completely different frequency response than if you're listening to somebody talking. So the hearing aid does these things automatically in the background. And then my job is to make it comfortable, use the patient's um, feedback, what, what they tell me, if it's too tinny, if it's too loud, if it's, if it's too echoey, too sharp in this situation, to make some changes. And then I also design the acoustics to be comfortable. So someone with a purely high-frequency hearing loss, I'm going to leave the ear canal real open, not amplify any of those low frequencies that they don't need, versus someone with a flat loss, I might be okay doing a little bit more occlusion in the ear canal to shape the sound the way I want it. It sounds like anyone could wear a hearing aid. If I had zero hearing loss, I could wear it if I just wanted bionic, awesome hearing or something. <laughs> Superhuman hearing. I've always thought that was interesting. I can plug a normal hearing test into the hearing aid and it will come up with a prescription for me. Wow. Are there alternatives to hearing aids? Well, it depends on the type of hearing loss and how severe the hearing loss is. So, for example, kids who are born with very little hearing, that is, so little hearing that they're unlikely to develop speech normally, potentially not develop language normally if they don't get language another way, visually, manually, you can do surgery called a cochlear implant. And that basically takes the place of the 
hair cells, you insert an electrode into the cochlea that transmits nerve impulses, wow. uh, transmits impulses for the hair cells. So that's an option, not just for little kids, for anyone who's lost enough of their hearing that there really isn't any usable hearing left. You can do an implant in here electronically. Things like hair cell regeneration are hopefully not too far in the future. Hair cell regeneration, that's that article that I sent you, isn't it? I didn't get an article, but it's <laughs> it's definitely uh, on the cutting edge of, of hearing research. Okay, I read this article in Science Daily talking about how, for example, birds can regenerate auditory hair cells, blah, hair cells, in the Science Daily article, which I'll, I'll put on the website with this post, there are some scientists who were able to regenerate auditory hair cells in mice. So I'm wondering if you've heard more, I guess, is this kind of the kind of stuff that you're talking about and how, how far away is this in the future? Can I just put some drops in my ear and like all of a sudden my hearing comes back? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how far away it is in the future, but this is the same kind of research I was referring to. Um, my understanding is that they initially thought they had to use stem cells for this. Yes, and that's what they mentioned, stem cells. And now they're thinking that maybe they don't have to use stem cells. Maybe they can add something to hair cells or regrow hair cells some other way. And I'm not very familiar with the research, but I know that they are looking at ways outside of stem cells to make the same thing happen. And I know that with birds, they do regenerate their hair cells, but when they come back, they don't come back in exactly the same pattern, so it's okay. not like so they get a... it's not 100% recovery. It's not 100%, right, but it would certainly, we think, would be an improvement over the hair cells simply going away. Sure. How often should I get my hearing checked? If your hearing is normal, we say, well, okay, so if your hearing is normal, you don't have to get it checked very often. But if your hearing is normal and you have a profession that puts you at risk for hearing loss, I would say every two to three years. Okay. If they identify hearing loss, then you want to keep track of it, see if it's progressing. One of the things that stinks about hearing loss is that once you have a little bit of hearing loss, especially noise-induced hearing loss, you're more vulnerable, more susceptible to further noise-induced hearing loss. Really? For, yeah, the... The way the hair cells are arranged, once they start going away, they leave gaps, and the structural integrity of the hair cell uh, bands starts to suffer, and then more and more of the hair cells can fall victim. Structural integrity, now I'm afraid. (laughs) Protect your ears. Okay. So at that point, we want you to come in every year or two. Do you know anything about the money, how much it costs, if it's covered by health insurance? Hearing aids? Uh, Hearing tests. Hearing tests are almost always covered. And I know for Medicare, they are always covered. So, yeah, typically that's something that's covered. Hearing aids are almost never covered, and Medicare definitely does not cover those. Some people who may have coverage are those who are part of a union or used to be part of a union, pipe fitters, welders. Really? Port of Oakland, all of those workers get hearing aid coverage. Okay. Military. Um, What is the range of cost for hearing aids? If you want a basic amplifier, something that, well, okay, so I should preface that. There are hearing aid dispensers who aren't audiologists, and then there are audiologists who dispense hearing aids. And the difference is the background in education, possibly also the devices that they sell. But for an audiology office like where I work, the very base model 
amplifier type hearing aid will run you $750 to $1,200. $1,200 is about the minimum cost for something that I would call a hearing aid. And then the high end would be on the order of $3,000, $3,500. I know some offices charge even more than that, but around $3,000 for top end is pretty standard each, each ear. I just, I think it's, it's, I think it's interesting to compare these things to vision, you know, because there's... Glasses are cheap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, glasses are fairly cheap. People are used to uh, losing their vision abilities at a young age, and you, you have eyelids, you can't close your ears. There's some uh, animals that are blind, but there are hardly any that are deaf. It just seems like uh, hearing is so much more complicated, or at least in this case, in terms of dollars, more complicated to treat. Right, and part of that is because hearing aids are little computers. There's um, an incredible amount of research and development that goes into the software, that goes into the design of hearing aids. They have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller over the last, well, 10 years, certainly. Now the smallest ones are the size of my fingernail. They've even got some wow. that you put in there and you leave them it's for gonna three months. It's going to get lost. Yeah, exactly. Um, Does that really go down your ear, ear canal? Yeah, they've got ones that, have, that will go down into your ear canal. An audiologist actually has to put it there, and then you leave it there for a couple months at a time, uh-huh. have it removed, and then put a new one in rather than taking it off every night. Uh-huh. So all the research and development goes into it. The other, um, well, some of the other things that make it more expensive than glasses are follow-up care. Uh-huh. So when I see a patient for hearing aid fitting, that's an hour I spend with them. And then for the rest of the life of that hearing aid, which could be 10 years, the service is included in our cost. Okay. So some offices will let you do it all a cart. You pay for the hearing aid and then you pay every time you come in for service, for repairs, for cleaning, for checking your ears. Um, our office does not do that because we find that people don't come back. And then they've got <laughs> hearing aids that aren't working optimally. They go in the drawer, they think, ah, oh, this hearing aid does not work. Right. Instead of coming in for regular maintenance and tune-ups and reprogramming and checking their hearing and doing all the things that keeps the hearing aid working optimally. So I'm taking into account all the hours I'm going to spend with that patient for the next five, seven, ten years. Sure, makes sense. A couple of people wrote in with questions, and I think I can... I think I can try to answer some of them and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Uh, So my friend Wyatt wrote in and asked, what is the best OTC hearing aid? And I've never heard of an over-the-counter hearing aid, so I don't know if that even exists. I don't know if that exists either. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't interact with those, I guess. Right, well, there are, for example, there are devices you can buy from the internet. If you belong to certain health plans, you can order a quote-unquote hearing aid from them, which costs only a couple hundred dollars. Um, But to be clear, these devices aren't really hearing aids. They're more like amplifiers and simple. Right, there's no way they can be custom fit. Right, so they cut out the audiologist, the audiologist's time, the fine-tuning, the troubleshooting, and they're pretty new, so I'm actually not sure how much success people are having with them. Okay, well, Wyatt, if you know more about this, you'll have to write in and comment on this post after we post it, because we don't know. (laughs) So, another guy, Keegan, asked for tips for protecting hearing while being a live audio engineer on concerts, theater, etc. So I'll try to give a couple of ideas, and then maybe Jovi will have some more. 
So I think the most important thing to do is to get custom earplugs or in-ear monitors and just mix with those all the time. You know, if you need to take them out sometimes, you can. The second thing is to limit your exposure at all times, at all other times. And one of the most important things that I learned in preparing for this interview is that your exposure is cumulative. So if you just mix a concert for three hours and maybe that doesn't reach your uh, exposure limit, but then you can't just take a break for a couple of hours and then mix another concert for another three hours because uh, you, you didn't really have time to rest. So that's a total of six hours that you had within a 24-hour period, and that will probably pass the threshold for, for whatever dose you're supposed to have for that day. So I anytime I'm not mixing and I'm working on a show or I'm, or I'm at work, I try to wear earplugs all the time. And then when I'm not at work, I try to be in a quiet environment, so maybe I don't listen to music in the car on the way home. And then, uh, I don't know, I, I, have a, I live in a pretty quiet place and work from home. There's not a lot of noise in the bedroom where I'm sleeping, things like that. So the last thing I would say is to stay healthy. So for me, that means like drinking water, eating well, exercising, because the ear is part of your body and it's not just like, it's, it's connected to the rest of your body. So is, is there anything else you wanted to add or correct? Well, on the topic of earplugs or ear protection, you could certainly look into filtered earplugs or musicians' earplugs, which are meant to attenuate sound but still allow enough high-frequency sound through that you can have a conversation, um, judge sound quality, listen to a concert, things like that. There's one really interesting thing that you told me when uh, we were just chatting earlier before the interview. People's high frequency hearing can really vary from person to person. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that because I think it's interesting that from person to person they might be having really unique listening experiences to the same event. Sure. So when I test hearing for somebody, I test 250 hertz to 8,000 hertz typically, unless I'm doing research or ototoxic monitoring and we are comparing that patient's thresholds over time. So we're not comparing that patient to another patient. But in general, hearing above 8,000 hertz is extremely variable and people who have normal hearing for speech frequencies and normal between 250 and 8,000 hertz can hear out to 2,200 hertz or, I'm sorry, 22,000 hertz, mm-hmm. <laughs> or only out to 16,000 hertz. It can be flat, it can be sloping, it varies a whole lot. And there aren't really any norms based on age or otherwise for high-frequency hearing because the variability is so great. Where do you think mm-hmm. would be the best place for people to look online for more of their questions about hearing loss and the way the ear works? Well, you could go to betterhearing.org. That's some very general information about hearing loss, hearing aids. It's not a very technical website, but for general information about hearing, that's a good place to go. Or you could stop in at your local audiologist. Okay, great. Jovi, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Sound design. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it it. on iTunes or send it to a friend. 